The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Welcome back. I'm Suzanne Phillips, and this is Psych Up Live. Americans own 45% of all the world's privately held firearms, and there's been an unprecedented did surge in firearm purchasing during COVID. According to data from the Gun Violence Archive, in 2020, gun violence killed nearly 20,000 Americans, more than any other year in the last two decades. An additional 24,000 people died by suicide. How do we understand this? Can we embrace gun safety? We're so fortunate to have as our guest expert today, Dr. Michael Anestes, the Executive Director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center, who will discuss the surge in firearm purchasing during COVID, the degree of suicidal thinking in those making purchases, and whether there is an overlap with additional reasons for gun purchases. He will discuss the lethality of a gun presence in the home and his research and belief in lethal means counseling and the use of gun safety storage practices as necessary to curb firearm deaths. Dr. Anestes is the executive director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center. He's also the associate professor of urban global public health at Rutgers University. His work focuses on the role of firearms in suicide, and he's the author of over 160 peer-reviewed articles and the book Guns and Suicide, an American Epidemic, for which he was a guest on Psych Up Live. He was the 2018 recipient of the Edward Schneiderman Award for the Americanist from the American Association of Suicidality, and he's the named investigator on a huge number of heavily funded suicide prevention grants. Dr. Michael Anestes, it is my privilege to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, let's start. You did so much research, and I just I think some of our guests and our listeners may know 160 peer-reviewed journals is over the charts. That just doesn't happen. You've done so much research. Let's start with your research on 3,500 Americans in which you inquired their intentions for buying firearms during COVID. What, what were the reasons people did this? Yeah, and, you know, I'll preface my answer with saying you know, every individual comes to their story differently, right? So the, the way I'm going to talk about this is what we found in the group overall, but obviously there are individuals for whom the journey is different, right? So not, not everybody's going to relate to or map onto this, but we saw some pretty interesting patterns in terms of folks who were thinking about purchasing a firearm over the next year. And, and we asked these questions in late June, early July of 2020. And so we certainly asked them with respect to covid um, but it's also important to remember that there was a lot else going on in the world at that time. Uh, the racial justice movement was in full force. Um, we were speeding towards a very contentious presidential election where um, gun owners were looking at the, the possibility of democratic control and, and how that might impact 
uh, gun legislation, right? So there's a lot of things that were going into people's thoughts about, do I want to buy a firearm and why? Um, but some of the things really caught our eye in it. And the most, I think, striking thing that we saw, and it maps on a lot with how I think about firearm ownership, is that the folks who were purchasing during the purchasing surge during those early months of COVID um, were a lot less tolerant of uncertainty overall. So they're just less comfortable with not knowing what's coming, the sense that the world could change in some way, their world in their neighborhood or the world more broadly, um, and that they don't know how. And that was aversive to them. And those same folks were also endorsing a lot of what we're calling threat sensitivities. They they saw the world as more dangerous and, and people as maybe less worthy of trust, right? And so if you have folks who don't, aren't comfortable with, with uncertainty during very uncertain times, who see the world as dangerous and maybe feel that they need to sort of take it upon themselves to keep themselves and their loved ones safe, maybe they start thinking about, well, how am I going to do that? And, and a firearm is one avenue that it appears a lot of folks who feel that way were taking. So a lot of this, these thoughts of purchasing, seem to be driven by just a sense of uneasiness. But what's interesting about that, Suzanne, is that it's not uneasiness with the neighborhood they're in, right? The folks who were or thinking about purchasing during that time, they weren't saying that their neighborhoods are dangerous necessarily, mm. but they're saying they feel more at risk. So it's this abstract, some, I'm going to lose something, but not that I necessarily saw something around the corner that made me think I really need to be armed to keep myself safe from that specific threat. So they might like their neighborhood, but you watch enough news and you get increasingly panicked and threatened. Yes, exactly. And so it's, it's again, it's this more sense of that the world is dangerous and I better be prepared just in case. Because I don't like having to think about just in case. It makes me uncomfortable. And this can help me control that a little bit and feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do to keep myself and my loved ones safe. And obviously, we know that there's a lot of danger and a lot of risk that comes along with bringing a firearm into the home. But when you're feeling that level of anxiety, and if that's not the message you're getting sort of consistently, um, it starts to feel a little bit like, you know what, this actually might be a really strong solution to what feels like a really overwhelming problem. Mm. Okay. Now, so that was sort of the general take on the surge in purchasing. Now you went another step farther and began to look at suicidal thinking in those folks who were making purchases, tell us a little bit about those results and how they fit in. Sure. And so this is from the same group of folks. And, and in that, what we did is we recruited 3,500 folks within the U.S. And, and we matched them to U.S. census demographics. So what that means is we made sure that we were sort of representative of the number of folks who identify as black or as white and the, as folks who endorse certain ages or males and females, right? So trying to get a group that looks a lot like America in general. And in this case, by getting such a large number of people, we're able to look at three different groups, folks who don't own firearms, folks who do, but they didn't purchase during this, these months of COVID during this purchasing surge. And then this group of folks who did, they made a purchase since we asked since March of 2020. So during that, during this surge. And what we found is really kind of unsettling. So generally speaking, Owning a firearm is not associated with thinking about suicide, which is really good news, because when a suicidal individual has ready access to a firearm, their risk of dying goes up dramatically. And so thankfully, if you have a gun owner and a non-gun owner, just, we're not just going to know just by the nature of their gun ownership status whether they're suicidal. But in this case, it looked a little different. The folks who purchased during the surge 
were far more likely to have lifetime past year or even past month suicidal thoughts than were other gun owners or non-gun owners. And those other two groups didn't differ at all. And in fact, 70% of the folks who said they'd bought a firearm during this surge endorsed that they'd had suicidal thoughts at some point in their life, which is an astoundingly high number and much, much greater than any of the other groups we looked at. And so in this case, the troubling pattern is the folks who are buying during this surge who might be more anxious, less at ease with the world, are also more likely to have thought about suicide maybe in the past, but also maybe in the past month. And to me, what that says is that's troublesome because that means there's a much higher percentage of folks bringing firearms into their home who are also likely to be thinking about using them to harm themselves. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, and one of the things that you you discuss a little bit that I'll raise is, is endorsing suicidal thinking in the last month code for <clears throat> I'm very dysregulated Um I, I don't know if I could go on and, and tolerate the the, dis, the um, dis, dis, dissension and the crisis in the country. Is it code for actively being suicidal, Mike? Or does it really reflect the way someone is talking about the sense of dysregulation that many were feeling during the pandemic? And these people have diff- more difficulty with it. So I think, it, you know, the different items that people endorse, the different types of suicidal thoughts they, they endorse mean different things. And so I think something you can say for sure across everybody who said they'd had some level of suicidal thoughts is that they were experiencing agony. Is that agony directly related to sort of the crises facing the nation at that moment? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they've been feeling that way since before all of that. Maybe it got worse. Maybe folks hadn't had it before, but it still wasn't related to the world around them. But I know that they're in agony, right? Um, And does that mean they're having a harder time dealing with a specific environment or crisis? I don't know if that's the case, but I will say that the folks who uh, endorsed thinking about purchasing firearms were endorsing far more stress related to COVID. And that was economic stress. That was stress related. Maybe I'm going to contract the virus. That's stress related to the inability to do things that they normally would like to be able to do. But, you know, obviously in a, in a pandemic, we're less able to do a lot of the things we like to do, right? So, so certainly there was more stress being carried around by the, think, by the folks thinking about purchasing. And those folks were also more likely to have suicidal thoughts. I don't know if I would go so far as to say folks having suicidal thoughts are always having a harder time dealing with the crisis. It's just that for them, whatever constellation of factors in their life brought them to that level of hopelessness sort of happened at that moment. And again, it may or may not be related directly to the environment around them, just like we were saying earlier that the drive to buy buy a firearm may or may not be related to the threat immediately around you. Sometimes you can tie what we're thinking or feeling to a specific event that's right in our immediate environment, but a lot of times I think it's more complicated than that, and I think that's probably how I think about these folks, too. Okay, so one of the things you, as someone who has specialized in in suicide and uh, safety, one of your concerns, I imagine, was to see how many of the people who were part of the surge of making a purchase were in some way endorsing suicidal thinking. Now, tell, correct me on this. Was there an increase in suicidal behavior or suicides during the span of COVID from, let's say, 
you know, March um, 19, or let's say uh, even the spring of 2020 to today, do we have an increase in suicides? No. So fortunately, overall, <clears throat> excuse me, no, we, we don't. The data is early. We don't normally have that picture this quickly, but what we have thankfully points towards suicide <clears throat> rates or totals going either down or staying flat if you look at them overall. But the caveat to that is that we probably shouldn't look at them overall. What you've seen is suicide rates going up, up, particularly amongst black Americans, right? And so it's important to make sure that, again, we don't zoom out so far as to lose sight of the fact that not everybody's living the same life and experiencing the world in the same way, right? Right. So overall, as a country, we didn't see a surge. Amongst black Americans, we've seen the rates go up. At least that early data seems to, to indicate that to be the case. Um, we have seen a surge in folks endorsing depression and anxiety and a much higher call volume to crisis centers, for instance. So there is that sense of agony. But it's important to remember how rarely agony actually translates into suicide attempts, never mind suicide deaths. And so when trying to figure out, did this gun surge and, or this purchasing surge and all this stress in the world translate into, uh, you know, increased suicide risk? We have about four minutes, but let's talk a little bit about the interpersonal theory so that people understand what would unfold and how someone comes to the point of feeling like they can no longer tolerate life. Yeah, and I'll give the quick and dirty version of this. And and, and we have been sort of dancing around this and what we've been saying already anyway. So what Joyner says in his interpersonal theory is that you have to distinguish between the desire to die, someone who's feeling that agony and that hopelessness, and the capability to die, somebody who's likely to act on their suicidal thoughts. And the thing to remember, according to that theory and all the data that's followed, is that most of the folks who think about suicide will never attempt, even if it's all they think about and all they want. And most of the folks who can attempt never will because they don't want to. It's this rare overlap of somebody who wants to die and has the ability to do that. And so the wanting to die part, that desire to die part, Joyner argues that it's a couple of things feeding into it. It's this idea of thwarted belonging, feeling disconnected, having sort of not particularly strong social bonds or, or reciprocal relationships or connections to others, whether that's a person or a higher calling. He also talks about perceived burdensomeness, this sense, this tragic miscalculation that folks make that their death would be more valuable to others than their continued life, that they're in fact a drain on society. And it's important to remember that suicidal folks aren't unloved burdens on the world. That's just how they feel. That's the lens through which they're seeing the world. But when people feel those things and feel hopeless that that's going to change, Joyner argues that's where the desire to die comes, comes about. But then again, remember, the desire is not enough alone to, to lead to someone to have the likelihood of dying. The capability needs to be there. And that's what's different. And what this says is that we are not sort of inherently capable of dying, that there's this genetic imperative to preserve bodily integrity and stay alive, that this is why you can't fill a sink and stick your head in it and drown. You will lift your head up. The capability, Joyner argues, is a few things, that it's often acquired but as David Klonsky and Alexis May added in, it can also be something that you just carried with you from the beginning. It's a dispositional part of who you are, and it can be practical or logistic. And so it, can, it involves things like, I can tolerate physical pain. I'm not daunted by doing something that might hurt me. It involves fearlessness about death and bodily harm. I can approach things other people step back from. 
And like I said, practical things. I have access to and comfort with a method likely to cause my own death. And so the idea is you can build that up over time through your repeated exposures to things that change your relationship to pain and death, or maybe you're just naturally more capable of doing this. And maybe that fluctuates over time, but the reality is when someone is feeling disconnected and a burden on the world, they don't feel like that's going to change. They're not afraid of death and pain, and they have access to a method that's actually likely to kill them. That is where the risk is highest. And so Joyner's theory says you need to have both the desire and the ability. Mm-hmm. So, and in following what you're saying, um, we only have another minute, and we'll pick it up on the other side. We there, for instance, only three percent of people who go to ERs as a result of poisoning actually die from their suicide attempt. That's exactly, their, and that's what makes firearms stand out so yes, so much. They are just so distinctly lethal. Like you said, 2 to 3% of intentional overdoses are, are lethal, but 85 to 95% of all firearm suicide attempts are. So folks almost never use a firearm, and yet if someone dies by suicide in America, more often than not, that's the method they used. And that's why one of the themes that we're talking about today is gun safety and storage of guns. And when we come back, let's talk about how the group in the study reported that. And let's t- we'll talk a little bit more about um, gun purchases, safety, um, and violence. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, where we're honored to be with Dr. Michael Anestes. He's the executive director of New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center. He's also the author of a, a very interesting and important book, Guns and Suicide, an American Epidemic. Stay with us. Much more coming. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join hosts Navanav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the converse viewpoint. Dare to be inquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. 
Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with um, Dr. Michael Anestes about guns, suicide, um, the surge of purchasing of firearms during COVID. And since um, Dr. Nessis was just talking to us about the kind of um, dynamics that go into suicidal thinking, then the first one had to do with thwarted belonging, feeling isolated. Um, there was no one who cared, even if they said they cared. And if they said they cared, they didn't understand the person anyway. But so there's a real sense of isolation. So as I was looking at um, um, Dr. Nesty's material in preparation for this show, it occurred to me that we have a lot of factors. We have the most purchases by people who have suicidal thinking or endorsing it, and yet we don't have high spikes yet that we see in suicide, with the exception of black Americans. And so I started to think, could it be that we were all in this together in the sense of, Everybody felt uncertainty. Everybody was enraged that we got mixed messages about what to do with COVID. Everybody was upset about economic decline. Everybody was exhausted with sheltering in place. And Michael, the question that I, that I raise is, was there something about the weeness, both online and uh, on the media and in living color that made people feel, in fact, they belonged to a very unhappy group of people. Yes, I think that's a really, really insightful and good way to think about this. And, and there's a pretty long line of research on this idea of coming together. And, and usually people think coming together, they think about that with a, in terms of good things, right? And there's, there's data showing that, you know, when the miracle on ice happened, there were fewer suicides that day than in similar, like the same calendar day in other years, and same deal with the Super Bowl. But what they don't realize is we have the same effect for 9-11. Um, it, it isn't that ne- people necessarily come together in celebration. It's that they come together in whatever, right? Great. And so if people feel connected to someone, either a friend in the room with them or a, a cause or a higher being, they feel connected to something that they're going through that is sort of larger than themselves that can be extraordinarily protective. And I think that there's something to be said that that could be part of what might explain why we haven't seen you increase rates. I don't think that's the only answer. I think there are two or three other things that jump out at me immediately. But I think this is a really compelling and important one. And it's not an idea I think that naturally occurs to most of us because when we think about tragic, difficult times, then we think about tragic, difficult outcomes too, right? And that makes sense and, mm-hmm. and that's a real thing. But you have this almost, uh, you know, counterintuitive protection going on from folks identifying with their distress with someone else. And that doesn't mean it's healthy to co-ruminate. And, you know, there's all sorts of problems when folks sort of find friends who share their problems and then just live and breathe those problems, right? That's not 
healthy. It doesn't lead to people feeling better. But if there's a connection, that in and of itself can be positive. Yes. Even a conspiracy theory has both sides. I'm part of something, and that something may or may not be healthy for me or anyone else. So so, so let me ask you what other things jump out at you at what seems like a lower suicide rate than expected in such a difficult time. Yeah, sure. So another optimistic thing is simply that we've we've gotten better. So you look at things like the, you know, gotten better at addressing this, right? So our treatments have gotten better. We study and then disseminate and implement better treatments to help people who are at risk. And, and so maybe you look at something like a surge to um, crisis call centers, not just as a bad thing because people are upset, but also a, a slightly good thing in that upset people are using a resource. And so maybe that the sort of safety net, that, that those helpers are helping keep the rate down by doing some good the less happy interpretation, and, and I don't, I had, this is an empirical question that could be tested, and I haven't seen the data on it, so this is not me saying this is what happened, but it's me saying it's a question worth considering, is, you know, the folks who are most vulnerable to dying by suicide included, you know, older adults. Those folks are also the folks most likely to die by suicide, right? And so is it possible that some deaths that would have otherwise been suicide deaths became COVID deaths simply mm-hmm. because it, th- those folks are living in those same demographic groups, you know what I mean? And I don't think mm-hmm. I've explained the whole thing, but could that have contributed? I guess maybe. I can't dismiss it, but somebody should be able to test it. And it might be that that's, that's nonsense. It might be that it doesn't work, but it, it's something that I heard someone say, it, and I thought, you know, I can't dismiss that possibility. And so it's one of the things where, again, I'm always happy to see a suicide rate go down. I said, that's great. Um, I don't want to look for a reason to explain it away mm-hmm. at all. Uh, I also want to make sure I understand it. And certainly we've had higher rates in groups like our medical workers, our physicians and people, the Laura Breen Foundation, they were part of one of our shows. People are trying to address any of the vulnerable groups for which we have seen an increase in the despair that may lead to suicidal behavior. Let's look back at your sample for a minute now in terms of something that you advocate, which it was just in the New York Times, um, Maureen's um, Dowd's column, and she was talking about gun safety and why can't we get our head around this? Th- over 300 children found a gun in this past year. 200 of those children died. Um, and, or 100, over 100 died and another 200 or whatever were um, wounded. And so the question is, what is it about gun safety that people don't understand or um, seem to push back about? In this grouping, I was confused and I raised it during our break that those who endorsed, those who were purchasing more firearms, Michael, they already had them, many of them, and were endorsing suicidal thinking, both were using storage for guns and yet at the same time felt they needed access to the guns. Can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe explain to all of us what storage means and um, help us a little bit understand gun safety? Yeah, sure. So, you know, with respect to the question about the sample, yeah, we were a little sort of uncertain what to make of some of those findings too, and that this anxious group who were thinking about purchasing firearms or who had already purchased firearms and had them in their home, um, there were there some storage practices we're seeing that are um, in large part actually relatively safe, um, and then some that less so. And in fact, we also saw folks making changes in their storage practices, both for better and worse, which to me seems erratic, not necessarily good or bad, but maybe even just a sign of either new gun owners who haven't fully settled on how they want to store their firearms or anxious gun owners whose 
decision on how to do it is changing on a day-to-day basis based on their, their stress levels. We don't mm-hmm. really know. And so we're collecting more data on this now. And I, honestly, I want to see how that shakes out in a second sample to see okay. was, that, was that signal or was that noise, right? Mm-hmm. But you asked the broader question of what do we mean by safe storage? And, and that's a really important one because what I mean by safe storage from the suicide prevention standpoint is different than what a lot of gun owners mean by safe storage. And so it's really important that when we're communicating with gun owners, we're communicating clearly what we mean um, and, and also being taking care to see the world through their lens. And so when I say safe storage, I mean storing the firearm unloaded, separate from ammunition, in a secure lock location like a gun safe or a lock box, and ideally with a locking device like a cable lock or a trigger lock in place as well. Um, and, and so there's a lot of steps to get to that firearm and have it ready to be used. From the perspective of a firearm owner, on the other hand, if, if those folks are questioning whether access, having access to a firearm or how you store a firearm is related to suicide at all, if they're instead seeing this as a tool for home protection, particularly in the middle of the night if someone's coming in armed, safe storage to them means having one on the ready, maybe, maybe loaded, certainly readily accessible, maybe in a bedside table or under your pillow, right? And so if you're seeing this weapon as a tool, unrelated to suicide, then safety means something different than the way I see it, as this is something that certainly serves that purpose for some folks, but also dramatically increases the risk of suicide. Mm, But so we really have suicide as well as children finding it, but suicide, of course, two-thirds of firearm deaths, I think you say, are death by suicide. So that is a real distinction. So in terms of Okay, so let me back us up a minute. And so when we talk about means safety, Michael, you're talking about the gun safety lockup that you just spoke about? I am. And then the one other thing I I add, well, two other things. One is storing the firearm voluntarily, legally, safely away from home during times of stress. And then the other is just thinking about sort of idiosyncratic, unique ways that map onto your own values in the home system. So you hear about folks who, you know, have drilled a key-sized hole in their their um, lockbox, and when they're feeling depressed, they drop their key through it, and only their partner then has a key to get in. And so there's all sorts mm-hmm. of creative ways people maintain their autonomy, but in a moment of stress, make that firearm less accessible. And, and it's also important to note, again, like you said, there's child safety, there's also theft issues with unsafe storage that result in firearms being trafficked and used in homicide, and also a more readily accessible fire makes domestic violence more lethal, right? So I come at this from a suicide perspective. That's often how I talk about it, but that's not the only issue impacted by these safe storage initiatives. I remember one thing in your book, and one of the things you said before is that in terms of means, if you are, so you use guns all the time. If you're military or or a a cop, This is part of your life, and we do have a high rate of suicide by guns with police and military. And one of the most interesting, I think, descriptions or interesting um, piece in in the book was you described, I think, young Israeli soldiers. There was a high suicide rate in this group until they came up with a program that when they went home on the weekends, they could not go with their guns. And you correct me, but I think the suicide rate dropped dramatically. Um, That availability... Yeah, availability, what was the percent? 40%. Yes, I remember. And I thought the availability is so lethal when someone is suffering, and to use the word agony as you described it. When someone's in agony, 
they are really thinking and feeling very differently than everyone around them who's thinking, how could they do this? Why didn't they think of the family? Why, you know, it, it's really a very different situation when you are on the side that's suffering with the agony. And so at that point, you're hoping somebody takes the means away or in some yes, way makes it absolutely. difficult to access. Or they do it themselves, right? Like a lot of what we do is trying to work within the communities themselves to, to recognize how, how, they, how they can keep them, understand the risks that are in place and how, what they can do to keep themselves safe without feeling sort of trampled upon or, or having had something, you know, put upon them instead of having some autonomy in it. And, and so it, 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 at last case, yes, I want someone else to do it for folks. But in the best case scenario, I want folks to adopt the safety practices like we wear seatbelts more than we used to. And, and just like we sneeze into our elbows instead of our hands now, just realizing there are simple steps we can take that don't change who we are and what our culture is and what our rights are, but lower these tragic outcomes that feel like they only happen to someone else until they happen to us. So what, what are some of the um, simple steps that anyone listening who owns a firearm and is you know, taking in the, the dangers could take. What are some of the steps? Step one is planning. Yeah. Step one is planning, right? So if, if the gun owner, him or herself, or other folks who have access to that firearm are having a hard time, you need to have a plan in place. The same way you do for, you know, a lot of parents tell their kids what to do if there's a fire in the house, right? Like, so maybe there's not a fire now, but let's not wait till there is one to come up with a plan. And that plan usually involves either changing the storage practice in the home, so like what I talked about before, letting someone else have the key to the safe or letting someone else keep it for you or using one of these new gun storage maps that exist in some states like Colorado and Maryland and now Mississippi, if you live in those places, um, to figure out where, where might I take a firearm to temporarily huh? have it out of here again, just like we don't, right. we let someone else hold our keys if we've had too much to drink. Mm-hmm, right. And then step two is more immediate. I'd rather we not wait until that hard moment. Let's just change our practices now, right? So how far along the spectrum of safety are you comfortable comfortable going? Will you store your firearms unloaded separate from ammo? Will you at least keep one out of the chamber? Are you willing to use a gun safe? Well, how about a biometric lockbox? That's more quick access, and it's still not at least out in the open. Certainly really good for unintentional shootings amongst children, and Better than nothing for suicide prevention. Where, how far along the spectrum of safety are you willing to go? Have that conversation with your partner, the, whoever you trust, and figure out well, what can we do to still feel like we are safe in our home from home invasion, but we're also safe in our home from all the other tragedies that that come about when a firearm is present. So I'll be the devil's advocate and say so. If in my if I'm in my home and I hear disruption downstairs. Will I have time to access my firearm if I've stored it safely? Yeah, and that's the toughest obstacle. I mean, I've spent a lot of time working with folks who own a firearm primarily for home protection, and, and they do that envisioning that exact scenario. It's 2, 3 in the morning, and someone comes in, and they're already armed, and you have a small amount of time to protect yourself and maybe your family that's there. And if you have to go fiddle with a gun safe in the, uh, in the dark and then you have to load the firearm, is that going to be enough? Um, well, you know, there's a couple of answers to that. One is we can look at, well, what, what are the actual odds of these things happening? Mm-hmm. Um, two, how often are those, those events actually stopped because someone shot a firearm as opposed to even just saying they had one? Um, mm-hmm. But three, 
maybe that isn't the storage practice for you. Maybe you need mm-hmm. to go somewhere else on that, that continuum to feel safe. And so that's why I mentioned things like a biometric lockbox. That mm-hmm. reads your fingerprints and then opens quickly. So maybe mm-hmm. you can do that. Maybe you okay. can at least have the magazine out of the fire, but you can load that quickly, right? So the idea is finding what steps will you take to okay. get there. But I also understand mm-hmm. it's a big ask. Well, we're going to have to take a break, but I even started to wonder as someone who really knows nothing about this um, in terms of your knowledge, and I'm trying to think like a gun owner, even if you thought of other ways to alarming the house that you were aware of an intruder that would give you time to access something that had been safely stored. But um, I think your your most your your recent answer in terms of there's a way to do it if there's a plan. We're going to take a break and then we're going to come right back. We're, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Anestes, his specialty: guns, suicide, violence, and in particular, mean safety. Stay with us. Much more to come. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we, and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back, folks. Um, We're here with Dr. Michael Anestes, and we were just talking about um, the best way to approach 
um, information about gun safety. Um, and one of the first things or, or something poignant that, that Michael said over the break was whoever is approaching a group of people who own guns and feel strongly about it, they have to approach this with humility and with an understanding that there is a gun culture. Our question is, can we make this culture or can we make gun ownership safe? Um, so, Michael, in terms of, I asked you about the fact you, you were talking in one of your research studies about who should be the messengers that would talk to people about gun safety without people feeling that this is a grab my gun situation. Yeah. And so we asked this in a actually much larger group of folks. It was about 6,200 people. And we were interested in, in sort of the public health messaging. So think more like an ad campaign, the so friends don't let friends drive drunk kind of messaging, right? And we're asking, well, who would be the credible messengers to talk about safe storage of firearms for suicide prevention? And we asked all sorts of folks. We asked gun owners and non-gun owners. Within the gun owners, we asked gun owners who are military or civilian or black or white or male or female or who store their guns different way. And there was some variability, but there were also some pretty clear patterns across just about everybody, which is that just about everybody found law enforcement and folks with military experience, either veterans or active duty, to be really compelling messengers. And then at the same time, just about everybody found celebrities to be the least, and then importantly, medical professionals to be the just about just about as bad of messengers. <laughs> and and that catches a lot of folks off guard because I know I work with I you know I I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and I work with a lot of MDs and, and a lot of folks of med- from medical professions who are strongly devoted in an admirable way to the cause of gun violence prevention. But it's important to remember that folks like to see and hear themselves in messages that are about them. I was just at an yes. event today where the phrase, it, not about us, without us, was used quite a bit. And, and I think that's what we're facing is nobody wants to feel that someone from outside their group who doesn't understand or relate to them is going to come in and them what to do. And that's unfortunately how it comes across quite often when the vocal messengers through our media or um, through any sort of messaging campaign aren't from within the community itself. Great, great. So you would advocate what in an all perfect world, how would you do public messaging to invite people to take seriously gun safety? Well, I would build off of what we did. And in fact, one of my doctoral students, Allie Bond, is going to do exactly that with her thesis where we want to figure out, well, first of all, let's identify different groups of gun owners, just different ways of of characterizing groups, because gun owners aren't one single group of folks. They differ geographically and culturally and for why they own firearms and which ones they own and, and so many other things, right? So let's identify these different sort of groups of gun owners. And then let's see who those different groups say are most preferable And then let's make messages targeted specifically to those groups based on the messengers that are most salient and compelling to them. So the message would resonate more with them. And so I would spend a lot of time speaking with gun owners and understanding their perspective and where their reservations are and what sounds good to them. And then figure out, okay, well, that tells me the message and and then figure out who needs to deliver that message. And the idea is it's not going to be one single thing. And it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be someone like me quite frankly. I, I care very much about this and I mean what I say, um, but I'm not going to be the face of this because I'm not within the community. I am an outsider, right? And so 
really making an effort to make sure that this is done with gun owners at the table because you're not going to solve the problem of safe firearm storage without the people who actually own them. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, I mean, that sounds like exciting research, by the way. I would, I'd love to see those results. One of the things, whenever I, I um, go back to your book, and I'm so delighted you came back on, that hits me is the enormous difference between death by suicide with firearms in terms of numbers and um, gun violence to other people. And there's no question that we've had, we have an epidemic of violence. How many shootings can we have in the course of just the last few months? Um, but side by side with that, and that's, that's horrific, and that's something that I think it alarms everybody. And breaks everybody's heart. And things have to be done about gun and gun safety for that reason. But one of the things you bring to the table is you you say at one point the firearm owners believe there is little or no relationship between suicide risk and firearm access or storage. Now, is that anything that they've you've done information about? We're certainly doing it on this show. But is that something that you have found any headway in? Because the amount, the amount that die by suicide with firearms is really quite, quite significant compared to even other, other situations. Yeah. So it's something we're working on, right? Um, so some of that is through, you know, the Gun Violence Research Center. We do a lot of communication of science, right? So we find different ways to talk about this through uh, videos. And, and visuals and things to try and get out to communities to get the information out. Some of it's through, you know, the clinical trials we've done on lethal means counseling, just one-on-one talking to folks, not, not reading the stats and, and trying to teach them like we're above them, but communicating with folks. Um, and I think a lot of it's going to come from things that we're planning to do in the coming couple of years, which is training folks within various pockets of donating communities, faith leaders, gun shop employees, barbers, coaches, mm. whoever, compelling voices that people admire, teach them to have effective conversations on this. And again, the idea is just it's shifting social norms. And that kind of thing can feel daunting and impossible. And it's certainly difficult. But I don't think it's impossible because we've made progress many times on getting folks to shift their opinion. It's just we have to find the right path for doing it. And it isn't, gonna, it isn't a fight. It's a conversation and a series of adaptations. And it doesn't mean straying from your values or the data, but it means delivering those things in a way that's compatible compatible um, with the life that folks are living. Uh, I think you say it so well. You can't expect people to suddenly change their values, but if you enter into their value system to help them create more safety for themselves and their loved ones, then that's a palatable message, and that's something that helps everyone. Yeah, it, absolutely. This, and it takes the temperature of, down in the room, right? It, it makes it less tension. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the things that always strikes me when I go back to your book is that 90% of those folks who tried to die by suicide who don't die, only 1% of those people ever die actually by suicide. Is that correct? Do I have the statistics right? It's certainly it's more than 90% never go on to die. And, and honestly, Perhaps even more important than that is, is 70% never go on to even attempt again, right? So most folks who survive mm. an attempt, that's it. They're not, gonna, they're not even going to attempt again, but you don't get that second chance with, with firearms, right? You've got yes. these folks who, because of the method, 
don't get to be a part of that, that group because, you know, with an overdose, even once you've taken the pills, you can call for help, right? This, this is a method that is final. Um, and in that way, it's not that it's more tragic. It's not that, you know, you want to change the way people die by suicide, but it is, it's changing the, the, the stakes of the decision in that moment and your ability to, to think about it afterwards and change your mind. And as you say, to to uh, let our firearm owners to raise their consciousness about the safety of the, their children, their families, and themselves. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have to stop, um, Michael. How could people access your information, buy your book? Um, the amount of uh, research you've done is just incredible. How could people find you? Thank you. Um, so, I mean, for the book, you find it's about the same place as you do any other book. So Amazon.com is, 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 you know, or any similar type of, of route for buying books, it's, it's available. Um, Guns and Suicide in the American Epidemic. In terms of the research, you know, obviously this is the trick, right? You want to learn about these things that are behind paywalls. So you can use my Twitter, at, which is at Psych Brown Bag. You can use the Gun Violence Research, research Center. Twitter, which is at NJGDRC, and we're trying to put this stuff out so it's freely accessible. You can go to gunviolenceresearchcenter.ruckers.edu to see, again, all the visuals we're creating and try to get access to the information. You can also just reach out to me personally. Um, it's important to me for folks to be able to access this information. Otherwise, it doesn't really serve the world much good. And, and what is your email, Michael? Do you want to give that? Uh, it is MDA141 at sph.rutgers.edu. Terrific. Um, Michael, I want to thank you again for coming on and for your persistent research and sharing and public advocacy for gun safety. All of us are a little safer because of your work. I want to thank you again. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, Newly on Amazon Audible, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, by 6 p.m. tonight, this will be a podcast on all of the platforms. Remember, if you have a comment or a question, just contact me at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, mostly be safe. Thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.